Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, it's been crazy. Of course, as always, since last week, it feels like eons ago that the Democratic debate happened. Well, it was only a week ago. And a lot has happened. Donald Trump melting down, Nancy Pelosi standing up and making women proud all across the world telling Donald Trump about himself during the the White House meeting last week over Syria. More people have come out and testified. It's been quite a week. You had Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, basically admit flat out that a quid pro quo happened with Ukraine. I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. You couldn't write, you couldn't script this better. Or worse, depending on what perspective you're looking at. Um... So this episode, I I have Charlie Dent, former congressman, Republican congressman, Charlie Dent from Pennsylvania. I decided to bring him on because the Republicans have just been weird lately. We've seen some cracks a little bit, maybe somewhere, uh, which we haven't seen in the past, which I found interesting. And I thought that Charlie Dent would be a good person to talk about this since he served with a lot of these guys and he made the decision to retire from Congress after seven terms, rather than put up with the bullshit that Donald Trump has been doing and having to defend it every day as an elected member, he said, the hell with this, I'm done. But he's also a CNN commentator now, so he gets to talk about what he sees and his honest assessment. So given what's been going on with Republicans, I thought, let me bring Charlie on and he can talk candidly about some of his experiences he can tell he's going to tell you some of the crazy shit that uh, he experienced personally directly with Donald Trump. Um, very interesting conversation, but Charlie's great. So stay tuned for that. It's a nice, robust conversation about um, everything that's going on, impeachment, state of the Republican Party and some pretty good anecdotes about um, about Republicans and and what's been going on in an honest assessment. So Charlie Dent, former congressman from Pennsylvania, will be joining me in a little bit. Um, I, 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 every day it's like, you know, since my podcast is weekly, it's not daily. It's hard to sometimes keep up with the deluge of information. You know, it's, I, I, it's hard. (laughs) There's so much to talk about. It's like, what, what do I pick to talk about? You know, but what I'm going to focus on for this monologue is I'm just going to kind of do an update a little bit on where we are, what's going on with impeachment, some of the, some of the updates on Ukraine and, um, and then get right into the conversation with Charlie because there's just so much. And I want to, I know people are dying to hear my thoughts on some things. So here goes it. Impeachment. Republicans are continuing to argue and whine about process while Democrats are just methodically continuing to investigate and continuing to depose witnesses. And I've got to tell you that the several State Department career professionals who have been up to Capitol Hill, who these heroic people who have decided to defy the wishes of the White House and the State Department, telling them not to testify, they have decided to say, screw that, we're Americans first, we're going to tell the truth about what's going on and what happened with Ukraine. 
And the testimony has been pretty devastating for the White House. And the narrative about Donald Trump not engaging in a quid pro quo with Ukraine over their military assistance and investigating Joe Biden and this crazy conspiracy theory about Ukraine and a server has been blown out of the water. Can we please now dispense with that as being a defense anymore? Trump admitted to it. Mick Mulvaney came out last week during a disastrous press briefing and admitted it. He said that's why they held up the the money. Uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie Dent's going to explain what the Office of Management and Budget does and what actually happens with this. In our interview, he talks about it a little bit because he was on the Appropriations Committee. This is not normal. Mick Mulvaney had the audacity to say, get over it. This happens all the time. No, the hell it doesn't. This was with corrupt intent. And when he said that, Washington was aghast. Okay, I can tell you right now, speaking to my Republican friends. And it was also reported this way, too, that Republican members were horrified that Mulvaney actually said this. Now, you know that he screwed up because he had to clean it up later. So if what he said was benign and not a big deal, he wouldn't have had to clarify it later on. Let's just be honest here. And then that wasn't flying because he was basically telling people, that's not what I said. Yes, it is. We heard you. We saw it. It's on video, buddy. That's exactly what you said. And you were incredulous about it to begin when you said it. But once they realized the error, I mean, even Trump's legal team was like, nah, we didn't have anything to do with what Mulvaney said. I mean, it was a disaster. So we all already know that the quid pro quo happened. And a lot of Republicans know it also, but were afraid to come out and admit that this is not okay and that it's impeachable. Well, kudos to John Kasich. I mean, he's not in office anymore, but prominent Republican, former governor of Ohio. He finally admitted, yeah, you know what? That's a quid pro quo. I was waiting for the the evidence. Mulvaney admitted it, for God's sakes. Yeah, this is impeachable. We can't have presidents doing this. Amen, John, John Kasich. But I'm still waiting for how many Republican colleagues are going to follow in his footsteps. You had Francis Rooney from Florida. He came out and he was open to impeachment. Guess what, though? He's retiring. So we see that pattern. But at least he's saying it. Donald Trump is really pushing the limits of loyalty with his Republican elected officials here because he's he's testing the boundaries of the Constitution, disrespecting the Constitution. And this has long-term consequences. I mean, people need to understand this. And I, I've got to tell you, I've just been so furious at how how many people have been rationalizing Trump's behavior as of late. The, the Announcing last week that the G7 was going to be at Trump's property in Doral in Miami. Insane. And then Trump, during a cabinet meeting earlier this week, just spitting on the Constitution, saying, oh, you people and that phony emoluments clause. Phony? The emoluments clause is in the Constitution. Our founding fathers put it there for a reason, because they didn't want presidents profiting off the freaking presidency. It's in there in plain language. Phony emoluments clause. Who the hell are you, Donald Trump, to call anything about our Constitution phony? You ignoramus. 
goodness gracious. I mean, this guy disrespects the oath of office every day. He didn't mean he's, he doesn't respect the oath of office. Give me a break. So he gets to pick and choose which parts of the constitution are phony and which parts he likes. Oh, he likes article two because that gives him all the power as president to do whatever he wants. That's not true. By the way, there are separation of powers, co-equal branches. Everybody plays a role. You're not a king as much as you'd like to be. Mr. Trump, you can't just pick and choose which parts of the Constitution you want to obey by and which parts you don't. Like, what? And I've said this before, and I've said it on CNN. Where the hell are all the constitutional Republicans who used to run around with their pocket constitutions during Obama's administration, claiming that he was an imperial president and how he was violating the Constitution every day? yet they remain silent as this bastard does? You've got to be kidding me. This is way worse than anything Barack Obama ever did. There were legitimate um, issues with Barack Obama and doing things, expanding executive power. But you know what? We're not going to relitigate that now. Let's deal with what we have right in front of us right now. Donald Trump on so many levels is, is destroying the constitutional republic phony emoluments. I, I can't, you know, <laughs> that might not bother a lot of people because they're just like, I don't even know what emoluments are. Never heard of it. Why are you so riled up about it? It's because when you start saying that some parts of the constitution don't matter, but others do more, that becomes a problem. You don't get to selectively choose which parts of the law to enforce. It's part of why our constitution has been, um, why it's remained intact for so long. I mean, yes, we've had amendments, some improvements for things, sure. But the overall document itself is the foundation for what what runs this constitutional republic that we live in. It's what makes us different than any other democracy in the world. Well, constitutional republic, if you want to be technical. And the disrespect and people on Fox News and talk radio, people like Mark Levin, who, who pride themselves in being constitutional scholars, acting, running around saying, oh, there's never been any scandal with Trump. This is this isn't a constitutional crisis. There's no problems. Really, Mark Levin? I can't believe I'm so disappointed in these people. They're fucking hypocrites. All of them. Excusing this. So when a Democrat does anything remotely close to this, then what? They're going to justify it then? Come on. Come on. Give me a break. But it looks to me like we're at an inflection point here uh, uh, somewhat, perhaps. Polling is showing over 50%, a lot of polls. CNN just came out with a new poll this week. Over 50% of the American people are in favor of impeachment, but 90% of Republicans still support Trump. Yeah. Really? Unbelievable. If you were to take, if you were to describe Donald Trump's behavior without putting his name on it to Republicans and say, Barack Obama did this, how many of them do you think would, would be like, oh, that's perfectly fine. There's no constitutional issues here. There's no impeachable behavior. Bullshit. (laughs) Bullshit. They'd be screaming off with his head. Come on as they did when Obama was president. And justifiably, I don't care what what letters next to your name, no president should behave this way, ever. Ever. 
Trump on his Twitter feed, running around, tweeting crazy shit again. He's a victim. Woe is me. Oh, that he, 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 after catching a whole lot of flack from not only Democrats, but Republicans as well, concerning the whole Miami Doral G7 debacle, Trump had no choice and withdrew that uh, offer to have the G7 at his personal resort. And uh, on a future podcast, I'm going to have someone from ProPublica. They've done an amazing job um, cataloging a lot of the corrupt business um, dealings and conflicts of interest of Trump Inc. They even have a whole podcast on it. And um, I'm going to have that, not this podcast, though, a future one, probably next week. Because it's just important that people need to see this. This whole drain the swamp is a bunch of bullshit. Donald Trump has done, he's stirred the swamp. He's brought the swamp with him worse. I mean, it's unreal. And Doral was a perfect example. Imagine a a mayor or governor of of a state directing a no bid contract to their own personal business where they would make money off of it, off of government contract. No, it's corruption 101. And it would have been if Trump had, had dug his heels in and actually gone through with this, that would have been an impeachable article right there. Impeachment article right there. And I think he finally heard Republicans say, listen, you can't do this. And we're not defending you on this. And let me just say something about Doral real quick. So not only is it notorious for bed bugs, which is gross, but there, the G7 is in June. So I have a house in the Florida Keys and I've had for like 20 years and June, July, and August are miserable in Florida because it's hot and humid as hell and it's hurricane season. Trump tried to say that, oh, this was the perfect location. Nowhere else in the country could have hosted the G7 and, you know, I was going to do it for free at no cost. Bullshit for free get the hell out of here do you think the american people are stupid he said oh i don't need promotion for my my resort because all he's been doing he's been bragging about his resorts and and it was reported that he does this all the time especially when he goes on these international conference trips that he all he does is brag about his properties well of course Mick Mulvaney, during that disastrous um press conference last week said well oh no no he didn't say it then he said it on fox news sunday with Chris Wallace when he was trying to clean up the mess. Well, he still, Trump still considers himself to be in the hotel business. And Chris Wallace, breaths, bless his heart, said, he's the, wait, wait a minute, he still considers himself in the hotel business. He's president of the United States. Uh, right, exactly. Hell out of here. And we're all supposed to still believe that, um, that Donald Trump is completely separated from his business. Remember that he, he did not put his assets in a blind trust. He did not divest from his businesses, by the way, like everyone else. I mean, we made Jimmy Carter give up his peanut farm in Georgia when he became president for God's sakes. Trump did none of that. He just said, yeah, I'm going to hand the day-to-day operations over to my two sons and we're not going to talk about it. Trust me. Yeah. Okay. Just the way he behaved with the whole Doral thing. It was like he was directing the business. Come on. There's no separation there. So anyway, he tried to blame the media and crazed media and Democrats for why he had to back down. But no, no. Republicans behind the scenes were fucking furious and said, listen, we're not defending this because it's indefensible, borderline illegal. 
you better, you, you know, no, you better reverse course, reverse course. And he did in a rare, uh, act of weakness. Uh, you know, so you have all of this going on. You've got the Ukraine, the Ukraine witnesses coming up and testifying. Um, and, and it just doesn't look, I mean, it's so obvious what's going on, right? Obvious what was going on. Donald Trump was pressuring Ukraine, a foreign government, and said, look, we're not going to give you security, your security assistance, this military aid, which they desperately need to fend off Russia's aggression. They're in an active war with Russia in their eastern part of Ukraine. Okay. We're not giving you the money that we promised you and the weapons and stuff that you need until you go public with claiming you're investigating corruption into Joe Biden's son and this 2016 bullshit about a, the, the DNC server being in the Ukraine, which I cannot emphasize enough is a debunked conspiracy theory, people. Okay. There is zero truth to this. And there's also zero corruption. There was no, I mean, uh, let me say again, not zero corruption, but there was no corruption investigation into Burisma, Joe Biden's, the, the, the company Joe Biden's son was sitting on at the time Joe Biden was there saying, carrying the message of the U.S. government that the Ukrainian prosecutor needed to go because he was corrupt. The rest of the world agreed. So there was nothing, no wrongdoing, zero on the part of Joe Biden in 2000, whatever year that was, 16, when he went over there. So, oh, but yet Donald Trump got this in his mind because Rudy Giuliani and those two Jabeeps, Fruman and Parnas, who are sitting in jail right now on charges, indicted on uh, campaign finance fraud and God knows what else. Giuliani, we find out, is also under investigation, potentially a counterintelligence investigation since last year. That's very interesting. Stay tuned for that. I'm sure more detail will come out. I've also been wondering who's been paying Giuliani and the name Dmitry Furtish has come up, who is a Russian corrupt oligarch and uh, fighting extradition. And yeah, and Giuliani, it's a whole, I could do a whole other podcast on that situation, but I'm not today, but pay attention to that. Giuliani is dirty as hell. These guys he's been running around with that Trump knows, by the way, we've seen pictures now and letters and more things that show how close this relationship was with Giuliani and, and, and Lev Parnas, who has Russian mafia ties and his partner Fruman. It's a disaster. These people, all of this around Ukraine, Donald Trump, wanted dirt on Joe Biden because he saw him as his big biggest political threat. And now we have seen one, one right after the other professionals from the State Department testifying basically that that's what happened. Why do these people have to lie? They're not lying. They're not making it up. It's Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually true. The more hoops you have to jump through to explain something, the less likely true it is. So that's what's happening. This week, Ambassador Bill Taylor testified. Devastating testimony. When Kurt Volker, who was another one of the the diplomats that was working on Ukraine, when he released his testimony and text messages between him, Gordon Sondland, the EU ambassador, and Bill Taylor, all talking about this whole Ukraine security assistance thing over the summer, Bill Taylor was the one who said, I think it's crazy to withhold military aid for a political campaign. 
And then Gordon Sondland was like, call me. Remember that? Well, Sondland testified last week and basically said, well, yeah, I called Trump and that's, he told me that it was a contingent upon this, but I had no reason that it wasn't contingent upon this, but I had no reason to believe he was lying. I'm not sure. He tried to play both sides of the fence. Still not great testimony though for Trump. This week, you have Ambassador Taylor and he let it all out. He is, he is the acting Ukrainian ambassador who replaced the first one who was pushed out. Yovanovitch, Maria Yovanovitch, she was the one that was pushed out by Giuliani and his jabeeps with the pressure from them on Trump and they removed her early from her assignment. She also testified that she felt that there was a unfair smear campaign against her. And Bill Taylor replaced her. Career professional. He was uh, the ambassador to Ukraine in the past. I mean, he has no reason to lie. These are people who are professionals. He's telling the truth. He said that during that phone call that he had with Gary Sondland when he was like, uh, call me. He said, quote, this is his testimony. During that phone call, Ambassador Sondland told me that President Trump had told him that he wants President Zelensky, the new Ukrainian president at the time, to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma, the Joe Biden, uh, Hunter Biden's company. And, well, he sat on the board and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. That's what he said. That's what Sondland told him that Trump told him. It's clear. During the call, Sondland told me Trump told him he wants Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in 2016. Quid pro quo. What are Republicans going to do about this? Instead, they're going to whine about the process, which is what they've been doing. I talk about this a little bit with uh, Representative Dent also. He has some thoughts on that. But they're, uh, come on, it's right there. And now they're trying to tell us that, well, it, you know, it's not illegal. It's not impeachable. No, really? Please. This is a problem. And it's only getting worse. Trump's tweeting's getting worse. His behavior is getting worse. He actually tweeted that... Um, well, besides the fact that that cabinet meeting this week was absolute bonkers. I mean, Trump was, it was on one of the top three, I think, craziest cabinet meeting presser things that he's done. Just the amount of lies after lies. I unbelievable. I was like, I was driving home from New York and I was listening to it, like screaming at my radio in the car. Like, that's not true. That's bullshit. <laughs> People probably thought I was nuts. <laughs> Who is she talking to? But, uh, you know, Trump's behavior, he's he tweeted out that um, that this impeachment inquiry is a lynching. (sighs) I don't even have to. Do I really even have to explain how despicable that comparison is? Really? Over 4000 African-Americans were killed, terrorized by lynching. It was a domestic terrorism tactic for decades in this country against African-Americans. And Donald Trump is going to actually use that term to compare what he's going through, which is a lawful impeachment process. Oh, he's always the victim. I mean, shut the hell up. I'm tired of him whining. What a 
pussy ass. Unbelievable. He's supposed to be a tough guy. His supporters think that he's a tough guy. All he does is freaking whine and complain constantly. I've never, unbelievable. Calling General Mattis an overrated general. General James Mattis is one of the greatest generals to ever live. And I, one of the most respected generals, Marine generals. You want to talk about courage, bravery, badass? James Mattis. But Donald Trump, a silver spoon draft dodger who got out of the Vietnam War with phony bone spurs. Come on. Bragging about not getting an STD in the 70s was his personal Vietnam. I just can't. This guy is out of control. And his enablers are worse. Rush Limbaugh went on the radio and defended Trump's lynching comment. He actually tried to say that the term lynching has nothing to do with African-Americans. That's an exact quote. Lynching has nothing to do with African-Americans. What? What? Unbelievable. The ignorance. Just the, the, the flat out. Rush Limbaugh knows better. Come on. But he turned this around. Oh, no. This is about the future of the country. We're, in a, we're at war with the other side. <laughs> yeah, we're at war, all right. We're at war, war for the soul of this country and deciding what kind of country we want to live in and what kind of leaders we want to have. That's without question. But we're also up against a war of disinformation with people that are so dishonest, like right-wing talk radio, like Fox News, like Trump, like people in his administration, like the congressmen, the Republicans who keep defending this bullshit. Yeah, it's a war, all right. But we've got to be informed, folks. We cannot let this be normal. We can't. We, we just, we can't. We cannot normalize any of this. And people have to continue to keep speaking up and, and speaking out. And I'm glad to see more people are doing that. Kudos to these career professionals that are coming out and testifying despite the White House trying to silence them. It's been reported now that the person who wrote that anonymous op-ed last year talking about how dangerous and crazy Trump is, but there are people inside the, the administration that are trying to protect us from Trump's crazy. Remember that, the whole anonymous thing a year ago? Well, apparently that person's written a book basically as a warning shot to the American people saying, you cannot reelect this guy. He's insane and dangerous. And frankly, all you have to do is look at what's going on every day. Look at what's happening with the Kurds, betraying our allies, Putin winning constantly coming in. Unbelievable what's going on. So we've got to pay attention, folks. Pay attention, speak up. Make sure we have to do everything we can to make sure this guy doesn't win re-election again. Because I don't know. I don't know what the country looks like with four more years of him. I don't. It's bigger than just foreign policy. I know Democrats from some of my friends who are Democrats. I know you guys like the flavor of the month, like Elizabeth Warren and these people. She will not win. She's a te- she has a terrible position on foreign policy. The Medicare for all is a disaster. It will ruin our health care system. Hundreds of millions of people who have health care, well, hundred and however many million people who have health care, private insurance health care, will lose it. 
Okay. This is a disaster and it will, and middle-class taxes will go up. That's why it's taking her so long to explain how she's actually going to pay for it. Good job, Buttigieg and Klobuchar, Biden too, to some degree for exposing her on that during the debate. I'm telling you folks, Elizabeth Warren is not the answer. She's not. I know Biden has been doing a great job, but foreign policy is really, really, really important. We need to know who is going to restore respectability back to the American people, back to uh, on the world stage. Who's going to do that? Because what Trump's doing is having will have lasting effects in the world order. And I don't mean to sound alarmist, but it's just real on top of everything else happening right here on, on U.S. soil. So that's this week. You know, <laughs> it's just it's always just so much. Right. One thing on a lighter note before I bring in Charlie, um, Charlie Dent, former congressman from Pennsylvania. So over the weekend, I had the opportunity to attend uh, a screening in New York City for the upcoming movie Bombshell, which stars Charlize Theron, Nicole Kidman and John Lithgow and Margot Robbie. And it's the story about um, the takedown of Roger Ailes at Fox News by Gretchen Carlson and Megyn Kelly. And it draws from, you know, real events with some Hollywood, Hollywoodization of it. But it was so good. And I just want to give a shout out to Charlize Theron, who I did have the opportunity and pleasure to meet and talk to for a little bit. She is lovely. I don't care what her politics are. I don't care. She is a talented actress. She was super nice and down to earth. And I appreciated her um, hanging around for the reception and talking to people. And she did one hell of a job portraying Megyn Kelly. I'm telling you, she nailed her. She looked just like her. She had her mannerisms, her, the tone in her voice, everything. She was, she did an amazing job as Megyn Kelly. I hope Megan sees the movie. I know she's been a little weird about, about it because she was not involved in the project, but I think it was, um, I think it was a, it was a complicated character. You know, Megan Kelly is a complicated character. I personally like her and, um, I thought she got a bad rap on a lot of things, but I, I thought the movie portrayed her well. And, um, and Nicole Kidman as Gretchen Carlson and John Lithgow as Roger Ailes. Wow. Margot Robbie played a fictional character, but she was like a composite of women who were subject to sexual harassment at Fox. But, um, yeah. So when it comes out in December, I suggest people go watch it. It's riveting. And for those of us who kind of live in the, in the TV news space and remember all of that was going on. Um, I actually, I have a little anecdote. So during the 2016 election, um, during the convention in Cleveland at the RNC, I got a note from Megan Kelly asking if I wanted to come have lunch with her. Now, I'd never met Megyn Kelly before. Obviously, I work for CNN, a rival network. But during, the, um, during 2016, Megyn would send me, she followed me on Twitter, and she would send me direct messages occasionally on Twitter, commenting on my appearances on, on uh, Anderson Cooper's show, when Anderson used to have those panels. She would praise my performances and things I said and, you know, encouraged me. And I thought that was really cool because, you know, Megyn Kelly was a big deal and, um, she didn't have to do that. And I appreciated that about her. 
because uh, I think she's tough as nails, you know, I mean, she, she can be controversial to some, but I just respect her as being smart and tough. And I liked her. I still like her. So when the convention came around, she actually reached out to me and I was like, sure. So we actually had a two hour private luncheon in the middle of the Republican convention. And it was great. And we talked about all kinds of stuff and she was really funny and down to earth. And, and you know, I, my contract with CNN at the time was year to year. So it was coming up for renewal at the end of the election. And she was like, you know, have you ever thought about coming over to Fox? And I said, well, yeah. I mean, as a Republican, Fox was like always the place to go, right? That was before the state propaganda Trump thing. And actually looking back at at Roger Ailes and, and the rise of Fox, I kind of realized like, wow, they really were laying the foundation for this craziness years ago. And I just didn't realize it. But anyway. So yeah, so I had this great lunch with her and we took a picture and she tweeted it out from her Twitter account with like however million followers she had. It was it was really nice of her. She didn't have to do that. I appreciated her um, spending that time with me and just being candid and down to earth. Well, the next day, the news about Roger Ailes, Roger Ailes being out at Fox dropped. So she knew, I mean, she'd already spoken to the investigators who were looking into the sexual harassment claims and she already had made the decision to come forward. She'd waited a little while, but she finally made the decision to come forward, speak to those investigators. And then the decision was made that Roger had to go. And I just thought that of all the places and people she could have spent time with, she chose me, which, um, which was very flattering. And so I hope that she found some, I guess maybe because she knew I didn't have an agenda. Maybe I was a safe space. Maybe she just appreciated my strength woman to woman. I don't know. But looking back, I was like, wow. And watching the movie and the way they portrayed that whole time period, I was like, wow, like two hours of that Megan Kelly spent with me <laughs> at her, at her insistence. So shout out to Megan. I hope that she, um, land somewhere again I know she, whatever she chooses to do next she'll be great at and so I just wanted to say that and um, on that note I'll t- I think it's time to bring in Congress former Congressman Charlie Dent next up on Honestly Speaking So I'm pleased to have my guest on this week's edition of Honestly Speaking as my former Congressman Charlie Dent. He was a seven-term Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. He's also a now a CNN contributor. He's also a senior policy advisor for DLA Piper, visiting fellow over at UPenn, and he's a distinguished fellow at the Pew Charitable Trust. He is doing lots in his retirement from Congress, and I'm happy to call him my friend. And I wanted to bring him on because he was one of those Republicans that had enough and decided to retire and live out his life doing other things other than trying to defend Donald Trump. Charlie Dent, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Great to be with you. So, you know, Charlie, you and I have had many conversations in the green room at CNN, um, just dismayed about the state of the Republican Party that we both thought we knew and loved, uh, given what's going on under Donald Trump. Um, the impeachment inquiry, what's happening with Ukraine, the crazy tweets, the erratic behavior. I mean, 
are you starting to see any cracks in in the Republican Party? Have you talked to your your former colleagues about what the hell's going on? Yes, I have. I, I think since the Ukraine debacle uh, occurred, uh, the uh, the shameful Kurdish uh, betrayal, not only betraying the Kurds, but American values and interests, uh, you know, the, the Doral uh, self-dealing uh, issue that uh, was, you know, very much in front of all of us, you know, Mick Mulvaney's confession <laughs> on uh, the quid pro quo. I think because of all of those things, maybe not just because of one of those things, but because of all of those things combined, I think there are many very angry, frustrated, and frankly disgusted House—I uh, should say—congressional Republicans, you know, who, you know, who I think long ago recognized they can't defend the indefensible or explain the inexplicable. But these recent actions uh, just put them all in such a terrible predicament. In fact, it seems as if that the president has taken their loyalty for granted, mm-hmm. and maybe even even mocked that loyalty. And and I think that's why you're starting to see some uh, some movements. So I would say there are some cracks. And, you know, there's always the potential of the dam burst here at some point, but there's a there are very serious cracks. And I think that's part of the reason why the president reversed himself on Doral, because it was just such an obvious uh, self-serving, you know, self-dealing uh, situation that was uh, simply indefensible and, and what many thought was a corrupt act. But, Charlie, Donald Trump said it was because of the hysteria of the media. It was because of... Democrats and that phony emoluments clause. That's why he couldn't have this G7 at his wonderful, perfect resort, Doral. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my sources tell me uh, that he, you know, he had some uh, moderate uh, members up at uh, Camp David this past weekend. That's right, with Mulvaney. And I believe, this, and I believe this issue was discussed. And I think the uh, the members were disgusted <laughs> by it, and uh, and they could not uh, countenance it. And of course, that Saturday night, I think I believe the president then you know withdrew this idea. But you know, as a as a former member of Congress and as a former chair of the House Ethics Committee, I can tell you that if a member of Congress had directed federal resources to his or her own private business. That would have certainly sparked an ethics investigation, and, and it could have easily led to a referral to the Department of Justice. I mean, I just can't imagine why the president would think this is going to be okay, or the people around the president. It's one thing for the president to believe it, but you would right. think there's somebody in the White House who would throw, you know, throw, would throw a flag. Uh, you know, maybe that maybe the uh, maybe one of the, the the general counsel to the president. They have ethics advisors there. I don't know what I don't know who that person is or what kind. Of maybe they <laughs> don't anymore, actually, because uh, Walter Schaub, who was a former White House ethics lawyer and also Richard Painter, um, they both have been apoplectic about this because they said if this happens, this was before Trump reversed it. But they said if this happens, all you know, ethics in the White House has died on this day. When Mulvaney came oh, yeah. out on Thursday and made that announcement, you would think that the chief of staff would have been the person to throw the flag on this, not the messenger to announce it uh, with such audacity as if everyone yeah. we're all jerks because we, we think that the president's resort shouldn't yeah. host the G7. I, I mean, didn't you serve with Mulvaney? Is, is this the same oh, guy yeah. you served with? What's, what's his well, story? No, all, all I can say is, is, is I, I look at it, it, it just strikes me as a, an entire – you know, ethical train wreck down there. Uh, but the, yeah, I did serve with Mick Mulvaney. 
Uh, and on a personal level, you know, I, I think Mick is a very nice person. I, I, I like him on a personal level. But we should also recognize he came out of the House Freedom Caucus. And so he and I often disagreed vehemently on matters of uh, policy and tactics from time to time. Where I always felt, you know, Mick was one of the guys in the House, you, you know, who would get wrapped up pretty tight around the axle on issues of budgets, appropriations, bills, debt ceilings. You know, he really was not the kind of guy who was going to be part of an agreement or a bipartisan agreement to move the country forward in those right. areas. Right. You know, he was he was trying to blow up those agreements, to be perfectly candid. That's what he would do. So now you put him in the chief of staff job, and he's there to – his job is to help put those deals together. But this that was never his experience as a member of Congress. And we saw how he got himself in trouble back, you know, in, the, in December of last year during the government shutdown, where they thought, oh, yeah, let's wait till Nancy Pelosi comes in to become speaker in January, and then we'll get a better deal on wall funding than we would have gotten with Paul Ryan in December. I mean, on what planet were right. these people you know, operating on? It just, I mean, that, that's my point. You know, they, it, was, it was just such an absurd notion that they were going to somehow get a, a good deal on wall funding with an incoming Democratic House, uh, and that they were ready to shut the government down, make that demand, thinking they were going to come out of this as winners. I mean, anybody with a pair of eyeballs or ears knew. Uh, that this was going to end badly for for Republicans and especially the White House, but uh, but that's what we've got. And Mick, you know, he's also OMB director, and you know, again, as an OMB director, you know, I mean, some of the things you would see come out of the White House, for example, when Trump was first um, uh, his first budget proposal, they, they they suggested in their proposal to cut the State Department by a third. I'm sure that came out of you know OMB. Just uh, to explain, they, just to explain to yeah. people who aren't inside the Beltway, people like us, the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, what is it and what do they do? It's, they, they they basically uh, help the president develop his budget proposal. So they work out of the White House and the, the Office of Management and Budget basically will be working with all the departments and agencies, getting a sense of what their spending needs are. And then they'll put this all together in a budget proposal that will be submitted to Congress, usually in February, um, usually in February, and uh, basically you know, outlining what the, uh, uh, the spending levels for the federal government will be. So it'll be the, the, the OMB really develops and presents the president's um, spending initiative to Congress. Now, do then, they have do they have a role? Because Mick Mulvaney, during that disaster of a press conference last week, also mentioned that they, when he admitted to the quid pro quo and then tried to walk it back later and tell us all we didn't hear what we heard, but he said that they're responsible for dispersing that that money. Can you explain what he meant by that? Is that what they do? Also, they actually disperse money. Yes, they. Yes, uh, I think that's I believe that's an accurate statement that he made. But but the Congress, you should remember, appropriates the money. So we Congress will appropriate the money. They'll take the president's budget proposal. They'll look at it. Then you usually discard it. Then then Congress will write the appropriations bills. Right. They write these appropriations bills. The appropriations bills become law. And then and then, of course, these dollars then are to be spent in the executive branch agencies. Uh, will determine, you know, how and when those monies will be spent. But usually there's a there usually needs to be some kind of a sign off from OMB on on many, not on all expenditures, but on many uh, on many expenditures, even after they've been approved by Congress, because once they're approved by Congress, that means the president had signed it into law and now lawfully this money has to be dispersed where Congress said it can go. Right. 
That's correct. Now, and that's and that's another source of controversy because, as right. you may recall, you know, uh, the president said he was going to divert funding, uh, largely military construction funds. And by the way, I wrote the military construction appropriations bill. That was my last official act before I left Congress. And he wanted to divert $3.6 billion out of the military construction accounts uh, to pay for the border wall. Well, the problem with that is, of course, Congress had appropriated the money for military construction, not for a border wall. So this gets into the very essence of what Congress is about. It's power of the purse. It's power of the purse authorities and the president spending money were in, in an area where Congress had not yet authorized. And isn't that being litigated? It's being litigated in the courts. Oh, right yeah. Now, that's, right. It's in the courts. That money's tied up. Uh, and uh, and frankly, because of that, because of that decision, uh, I believe that, you know, we could be in for another shutdown. Uh, come Thanksgiving or Christmas. Oh, goodness uh, gracious! Because, because this issue has not yet been resolved. Because if, if you're if you're the Democrats in Congress right now, or if you're a Republican on the Appropriations Committee or any committee, and you're saying as as a member of Congress, if we appropriate money for a specific purpose, should the president have the authority to redirect it for something he 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 may or he or she may may like that has not been approved by Congress? And so I'm I'm worried about this not just because of this president, but because of the next president. Well. Sure. It's a direct conflict to the separation of powers and what and what the founding fathers specifically enumerated to Congress, which was the powers of the purse. It was part of the balance of, of powers that they wanted. They didn't want the executive to be able to just d- direct money to wherever he wanted, because then you have an imperial president. What's the point of having a Congress? That's correct. I mean, the and, and again, this strikes right at the very heart of Congress's Article One authority, which is again the ability to appropriate money. And so, so I think that this is a, a an issue that has not yet been resolved. And before we pass another appropriations, go through another appropriations cycle, I suspect the Democrats on the committee and and many Republicans will say, well, what's to stop the president from diverting the money for something else? Right. You know, right. What's it, what, what good is an agreement if the president is going to work around them? after the fact and then either rescind or redirect monies without the uh, the consent of Congress. I mean, you may remember, too, this summer, right after the budget agreement was enacted in July, the president was going to unilaterally rescind uh, foreign assistance dollars, basically. And I think part of That's that right. might have been part of that might have been I'm not sure if the Ukrainian money was also part of that. Time. That's actually a good I might go back and look that up. I'm not sure that might have been separate and apart from this, but he was going to rescind the money. And, and members of Congress in both parties objected. They said, wait a minute, we appropriated this money. If the money's to be rescinded, Congress will determine how it will be rescinded and where it will be redirected, not the president. And uh, and the president then did pull back. Well, he, he had no he, choice. He, he had no yeah. choice. I mean, you know, it's it just furthers the notion of how ignorant he is of the way our government works, ignorant of the Constitution, and frustrated by it. I think he thought that he was going to be pre- become president and do whatever he wants. He said it before. Oh, Article 2 lets me do whatever I want. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Who well, told well, you that? Kara, what's even more interesting, though, is because he had just he had just signed the budget agreement. So and then to turn around and rescind money, members of Congress are saying, wait a minute, we made an agreement on how we are going to spend this money. Then he unilaterally says he's going to rescind money. Well, they said, what's the point of sending, you know, entering into any agreement with him? They're thinking they believe the president is not acting in good faith. 
Well, um, does, he ever? does he ever? Does he ever? That's the whole point. So that's that's what's going to make this uh, uh, late fall, Thanksgiving, Christmas, a particularly stressful time. Um, because they need to come up with a, they need to come up with a, you know, a way to fund the government. And if the president is going to unilaterally uh, move monies away from uh, programs that Congress has, uh, you know, uh, authorized and, and, and funded, well, then we've got a problem here. Well, I, I worry about how erratic he, his behavior is, and he has zero empathy. He's a malignant narcissist. He will use this and hold it hostage going into the holidays, knowing there are hundreds of thousands of federal workers. Who would be in, and their families who would be impacted if there's another shutdown over the holidays like that? He just doesn't give a damn, and um, he's he's already been on a rampage. He's tweeting and saying crazy things because of this impeachment inquiry. The Democrats are looking at timing to have the impeachment vote around Thanksgiving or before the end of the year. I just think that this is going to be an absolute train wreck. Trump is not a rational person. Yeah. And when you look and at I, and when you look at the way the Republicans are handling this, I mean, when Mick Mulvaney came out during that press conference and talked about the quid pro quo and says that, you know, this is what we do all the time, that there's politics and foreign policy. Get over it. Uh, you, oh. What did you what were you thinking at that moment? Well, look, it, foreign assistance is often condition-based. And, uh, and I gave an example on CNN yesterday, and I probably said it too quickly and didn't provide enough context, but I'll do it here. Yes, now a few you have years time ago, to do it here. <laughs> yeah, a few years ago, you may remember, uh, during the uh, Morsi government in Egypt, he, he was a Muslim Brotherhood. And, yep. And, and, and the United States has been providing for years military, uh, and foreign military assistance to the Egyptian military, and we have a strong relationship. But at that particular moment, there were Americans being held in Egypt against their will, various uh, workers of non-governmental organizations or um, NGOs, and included the, the Secretary of Transportation, uh, Ray LaHood's son, among others, but they were being held against their, their will. And so, so what we did on the Appropriations Committee, we said we are going to withhold this military assistance until these NGO workers are released. So you can. So that's a condition, right? Or some could come, some could call that a quid pro quo. But we're not. We weren't doing this to help advance our own personal or campaign interests. We are doing this to protect Americans overseas or to advance some American policy interest. That's the um, difference here. That people are not yes. getting, and the Republicans who know better, and you know, you served with these guys, and you know how they behaved under the Obama administration. They know yeah. this, but yet they're going out here acting as if what Donald Trump did, what he clearly said on the transcript, what these career State Department yeah. officials and diplomats have been saying as they continue to testify in the impeachment inquiry. Everybody knows the difference is that there are legitimate reasons where the, there is the federal government, the United States national interest involved versus the president's own personal political ambitions. Well, exactly, and and the, and the issue with Ukraine is is rather striking. I, I visited Ukraine with Senator Coons and a few other senators back in uh, 2016, and and we had raised this issue of corruption. And, and and Ukraine knows they have a corruption problem. Right. They're fighting two wars. That's right. One with the Russians and one against one with the Russians and one against corruption. And so we work with them. And and Ukraine is not the only country in the world that deals with corruption by any means. And so we provide. 
assistance to some of these countries, but we often do it in a way that uh, that basically we condition that aid based on their ability to fight corruption and to make sure that you know monies are being spent properly, and and that's certainly appropriate in Ukraine and elsewhere. But that is not what was happening here. It was very clear based on that phone transcript. Uh, that the president was pressuring or attempting to pressure or trying to facilitate the uh, Ukrainian president uh, to investigate his principal campaign rival, Joe Biden, and his son in exchange for release of that that military assistance. And maybe a presidential White House visit, too. I mean, there was a quid pro quo that was pretty obvious, maybe not as explicit as some would like in a legal sense, but it was certainly implicit. And uh, and you just simply can't use it. But even if you forget about the quid pro quo for a second, the president of the United States cannot use his official office to advance his campaign interests, which is what he was doing. It's what he's been doing. From day, it's what he's been doing from day one. It appears he's never stopped campaigning. I think he's governed maybe for five minutes every time he's uh, given a bill to sign that he has no interest in. He just signs it, has a ceremony in the White House, and then he's on to the campaigning mode again. He's he's never stopped campaigning. Well, it, it's I mean it's just simply startling and stunning that the president would have engaged in this. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm again, I'm looking at this as a, as a member of Congress. Sure. As is a it- member of Congress and as, a chair, and as a chairman of the Ethics Committee. Had I seen a phone transcript like that that was brought to me that a member of Congress was using his position to try to pressure a, a foreign government to you know, investigate his political opponent, that would, of course, um, uh, would have created an immediate investigation and quite probably, quite possibly, uh, likely, all likelihood, a referral to the Department of Justice. So do you think it's I mean, impeachable? Do you think what Donald Trump, what we know now, what is in the public yeah, sphere, sure. do you think it's impeachable? Well, I do think these rise to the level of impeachable offenses. I would also say, but, but first things first, uh, I, I do believe it's appropriate uh, for the for there to be an impeachment inquiry. And I think it's important that the Democrats actually vote to establish that impeachment inquiry. I understand they don't have to do that, uh, but uh, they might want to take away the Republican talking point and and take away uh, Trump's argument that it's an Ill- illegitimate proceeding, which it's not. Right, but, but that's not, what they're pushing. Not that Trump will not that the president will turn around after the inquiry vote is uh, is passed, and he'll turn around and say, "Okay, now I'm going to help, and I'm going to help you." I doubt that he will. <laughs> no, but and I think that's please. part of the reason. And as you know, part of the reason I think Nancy Pelosi has not had that inquiry vote because if they do, then that allows the Republicans to have a certain. Um, uh, equal access to witnesses and asking questions and things like that. I think they have subpoena power too, right? Um, that they don't want, that she, oh, doesn't, yeah. that she doesn't want because it's been such a clown show. These Republicans have not been acting in good faith. It's not like what happened during the Clinton impeachment where the, at least both sides were not putting on the kind of ridiculous show that that's happening now. And I think she's concerned yeah. about that because right now it's been very methodical. They've been conducting it almost like I likened it to a grand jury procedure. Where these, but these it's are, not. I know, I yeah. know, because it's not yeah. criminal, but similar in that they're having these witnesses behind closed doors because this is kind of the indictment phase, and then they will release the transcripts in due time for everyone to see because they don't want the distraction and and that the Republicans have given. I mean, look at the way they've behaved on the Judiciary Committee. Well, out of control. Well, I, look, I I believe like the, the Democrats have said that they would like to get this impeachment situation wrapped up by Thanksgiving or Christmas. Right. 
I think the Democrats have to be very careful that this proceeding does not look forced or rushed. Sure. And you know, the more sure. people, the more people they interview, and I've done this as you know, having done an ethics investigation, many of them, uh, I can tell you that these investigations never go as quickly as anyone would like because the more people you interview, the more information is revealed. You know, you, you're going to have to start chasing down more people, more questions. Uh, and that leads to more questions and more witnesses. So I think it's not going to move as quickly as they think it would. So they have to be careful not to force this or rush this. Now, I understand why some of this has to be done behind closed doors. You're dealing with sensitive matters of perhaps national security, right. things that can be of a classified nature. But I would urge on the side of transparency to the greatest extent possible that they should do as much of this in the public as they can. I mean, yes, they're going to have to deal with Republicans who are going to raise objections and may carry on in ways that some people won't like. But that's part of the process. And, and again, this and I know they like the Democrats like to say this is a, a grand jury proceeding, but it really is. This is a, this is not a uh, this is this is a political process, not a legal one. And uh, and I think they have to keep that in mind. I mean, uh, I, I think they have to make sure this looks like it's a a very you know straight up process. And I think they're trying in some respects, but I think they can do more. Yeah. Because and the Republicans are and and, and the Republicans are screaming about the process, saying it's it's rigged, it's you know it's uh, it's illegitimate, uh, and and they're doing that in large part because the substance right. of the allegations are <laughs> compelling. They're compelling on the uh, on the you know I, I would have to think that the Rao decision had that gone through would have been an article of impeachment. Oh, without uh, question. As and, you know, same, you know, and, and the president's, you know, what you could call obstruction, failure to cooperate with Congress on, you know, you know on a legitimate investigation. Uh, and, of course, you know, the, the whole phone transcript. The challenge for the Democrats is they have to they have to weigh in their minds, you know, if, if impeachment is the best remedy in an election year you know, as a political matter. And by the way, none of us really know. You know how the politics of this will play. We all kind of think we do, but we really don't know. And and uh, and I think you know if you would ask me about you know, the politics of impeachment prior to the Ukraine uh, whistleblower complaint, I would have said the Democrats would have been crazy to move down the impeachment path. Right. It would have harmed them politically. You know, today I'm not so sure. Yeah. I, you know, I think you know I I think it's it's mixed. I think these swing these marginal district House Republicans don't want to vote on an impeachment inquiry, just as maybe some of that House Democrats in marginal seats don't either. And I can tell you, Senate Republicans in swing states sure as heck don't want to have to sit as jurors in an impeachment trial. Yeah, the politics of this is very interesting. Uh, I've pointed out that at this point in the Nixon impeachment, the, the, the public was only about 19 percent supportive. And right now, poll after poll is showing 50 percent plus support for impeachment, at least the impeachment inquiry, uh, so slightly less for the actual removal. But it's almost three times more than what it was for uh, Nixon at yeah. this point. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, CNN just came out with a poll um, that showed 50 percent support. But what was also remarkable is that it, there was 90 percent support for Donald Trump with the Republican Party. Ninety percent still, even with everything that we've seen, um, which makes me wonder if these Republicans are willing to do the right thing. You know, Edmund Burke talked about the trustees versus the delegate, you know, whether you're a trustee or a delegate of the people. What role do you play as a member of Congress? 
Do you think that yeah. your former colleagues are struggling with this? Because most of them have to know that what Donald Trump is doing is a violation of his oath of office and the precedent we're setting for future presidents is awful, but they're afraid no, of losing. No, they, I think most congressional Republicans know that Donald Trump's conduct in office has been atrocious. And it's this behavior uh, that is, you know, driving, you know, the, 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 the public uh, disapproval of the president more than any, more than anything specifically. But I mean, just as you know, this just you know, on a day to day basis, you know, he had a meltdown in the office last week with Nancy Pelosi. He has these public meltdowns on television. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen it, you know, from Charlottesville to the McCain comments to fighting with the uh, the Gold Star parents, uh, you know, to, uh, oh, you know, to the abrupt withdrawal yeah. from Syria. Yeah. I mean, there's just that, you know, we lose, we, you know, we, we, we can't recite all the things that have happened. There's so many. And it's, you know, so this is accumulation. This is, there's a cumulative effect to what the president has done. And as I think baked in now, the Republican members of Congress, I think, have to start thinking about the future of the party post-Trump. You know, when Trump is gone, whether it's, you know, after next year or four years hence, you know, uh, are we, are we, will Trumpism still survive? And I think, think? That, and it, well, I think the party has to get to a better place that we, we need to make sure that this party is inclusive, that it is socially tolerant, fiscally responsible and uh, believes in construction, uh, constructive international engagement. And I, I think you can make a case. If I could define Trumpism in a three words, I would say protectionism, isolationism and nativism. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in three words. Yep. And I don't think that's where the Republican Party historically has been. Nor is it a place where we should be or where we would want to go in the future. But look so, at the party now, Charlie. It, it, do, it doesn't feel like there's room for people like us. What happened to the compassionate conservatism? What happened to the fiscal conservatives? What happened to the common sense conservatism that people like you and I used to? We used to not be the establishment, I guess. We used to be the main, the heart of the party. There doesn't feel like there's room for people like us anymore. I, I mean, who are going to be those leaders that bring us that bring us out of this this era of Trumpism? I, I worry about that. Well, you know, the party is not going to be able to survive simply on you know uh, rural voters. I agree. Rural voters. I mean, if, you know, if we're not doing well in the urban core, we're having problems. You know, very significant problems in the suburbs. Uh, you know, we, we just can't. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a middle-aged white male. I'm over 50 years of age, and you know, much of the Republican Party, you know, looks like me. And and don't get me wrong, I want to make sure we have lots of you know uh, white males in the Republican Party. We you know I want to get all kinds of people in the Republican Party. We have to be inclusive. Uh, we have to get more people who don't look like me in the party, whether they be younger or women or uh, you know people of other uh, uh, face or, or races. We need to be more inclusive or more ethnicities. We need we have to be a broad party. And I think what we witnessed with Trump, in, instead of trying to you know, deal with demographic demographic changes, you know, responsibly. And I would argue embrace those changes and figure out a way to, you know, to bring those people into the party. It seems like that the president under his leadership is trying to resist demography and is resisting change and doubling down on his existing base, you know, to the exclusion of others who I think might find a nice home in the Republican Party if they just feel like we want them. Well, sure. I, I, I mean, I'm a conservative and a Republican because of not what's happening now, but because of those things, I feel like our our worldview 
is inclusive and just the messengers over the years have been awful and how we've done that. Um, but now it makes it very difficult to get people to even listen to what Republicanism or conservatism was supposed to be because of what's happened under Donald Trump. It's just been he's just blown it all up. And because of his enablers who've allowed it, I I, I worry about it. But the reason why I stay in the party and I've said this many times and people who listen to me know is because I'm hoping that once Trump is gone, that there will be enough of enough people like you and I to try to say that was an aberration. This is really what we the, the future of the party should be. Listen to us and let's build back up, back up. to but, 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 but I also like to point out at times, Tara, I think sometimes we give Trump too much credit or blame, depending on your perspective about some of the uh, some of the trends that we've seen. I would argue many of the you know, I, I've often thought that Donald Trump was not the cause of all of these problems, that the, that the fire was already lit. But he is an accelerant. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the gasoline on the fire and he will happily fan that flame. You know, of, of bitterness, of resentment, or whatever, whatever it is, the anger was already there, um, and and so I think we have to keep that in, 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 into some kind of perspective. Same thing, you know, globally. I mean, I you know I can't blame Donald Trump for Brexit, you know, or or you know the what's going on in these other uh, uh, countries where, you know, you're seeing uh, autocratic impulses, for example, uh, or more authoritarian impulses and some retrenchment from democratic values, small d democratic values. Right. So I think so. I can't say that, you know, Trump has obviously been, you know, problematic in that sense, but I don't know that he's been the cause. I think you're right uh, about although, that. Although he has a big phone and he makes and he's making the situation much worse. Uh, so I think we have as we as a party, you know, that's why I get back to this. You know, do we want to be a party that, that embraces constructive international engagement? Um, that, that believes in that you know, we can advance our national interests in a multilateral setting, you know, which I think the president has a hard time with. He doesn't like NATO. He doesn't like the TPP. He doesn't like you know, the Climate Paris Accord. He wants to get out of everything that's of a multilateral level. Uh, and I think that's a, a real problem. Whether we like all these organizations or agreements or not isn't the issue. They're American commitments. And I think the president is, you know, he's undermining American credibility, you know, on a on a daily basis, you know, by some of these uh, these very rash and erratic actions on his part. Well, I would argue it's because he has no idea the importance of relationships. Again, that goes back to his malignant narcissism, that he has no respect for what those relationships mean, what alliances mean. He claims he loves loyalty, but he it's only loyalty to himself personally. He doesn't understand the concept. And it's it's uh, compromising national security interests. It's uh, that part of it is another frustrating area for me as a Republican, looking at where what Republicans used to represent on the foreign policy stage. That's out the door, too. All of these senators, particularly who are staying silent while this is going on is uh, beyond me because that damage, I've made this point many times that the president has way more unilateral ability to damage American credibility overseas than he does domestic policy because there are checks and balances yeah. of domestic policy, not so much for foreign policy. Yeah, well, you know, you, you mentioned something, too, about the, uh, uh, you know, with, with the, the loyalty issue. You know, the president, you know, he demands loyalty from everybody around him, but shows none. <laughs> to right. others, right, uh, and that, that's what is so stunning. Uh, but you know, but I always said, how can there be loyalty if there is no truth? If he, if he's so, you know, if he, he is so casual about the truth, you know, he makes false statements on a regular basis. You know, it, without truth, there cannot be trust. 
And without trust, there cannot be loyalty. So I, that's right. So I think it gets back to the, the truth. You know, he makes all these statements that are, you know, wildly, you know, incorrect or false or lies or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and, and, and I honestly believe that he, he believes what he's saying. He believes it to be true, even though it's false in many cases. And, and it's, it's hard to establish a dialogue or a level of trust with somebody like that. And the other issue, too, I've noticed the president, having been in a few meetings with him, he really does not uh, – you know, he's, 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 he's not a policy guy. Let's put it that way. No shit. <laughs> he, 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 doesn't, he, he does not like to do policy. He doesn't have the patience for it. And frankly, I don't think he has the interest. No, he doesn't. You know, I, it's too much. I just don't think he has the interest. Did you see the story in Politico about uh, his first Defense Department briefing? And how aghast everyone was because he was completely yeah. uninterested and they knew moving forward to just have pictures and like short bullet points and that was it. Jesus, yeah, I saw that article. And his main issue was, you know, like the, 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 the you know, the uh, military parade like they had in France. That's right. what he wanted to talk about. Like a child. Rather than, yeah, rather than understanding all of our, you know, you know, all of our, you know, where our people are deployed, where we have bases, what our interests are, you know, what our who our partners are, getting into the you know, the, you know, the geopolitical strategies that I'm sure the folks at the Department of Defense wanted to share with him and brief him on, and he's more, you know, in, into the, uh, you know, in, in, into uh, a military you know, into symbols. Yeah. Let's have a let's have a parade down Pennsylvania Avenue and. Uh, you know, because that because they did it in France, and boy, it was a lot of fun. And you know, he got to look at the hardware, and boy, isn't this interesting? But well, no, when the, when it was the, more like look at me, because then it looks because he sees yeah. it as an extension of himself. It's all about him and his power, which is just sick. That's why he likes Putin and these autocrats because he respects their power. He doesn't care about our constitution. Um, uh, you you said you've been in meetings, and we have a couple minutes left. You've got you've got to yeah. tell me about what your most horrifying moment was with Donald Trump in person. At what point did you say to yourself, "This guy is freaking insane"? Well, there's <laughs> Tara, there's, there's there's a lifetime's worth of work for a therapist here. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but let me here's the uh, here, during the uh, March 2017 uh, healthcare repeal replace Obamacare debate. I was summoned to the White House twice, once on a Tuesday and once on a Thursday. It was the week we were going to vote on the bill. It was the very same week that they actually ended up pulling the bill off the floor. But prior to that vote, on a Tuesday, I went down representing the center-right Tuesday group members, had a meeting in the Oval Office, Mike Pence and the president, of course, uh, Steve Scalise and others. And I expressed to the president the problems of the health care bill. Uh, respectfully. And, and to be fair, he was very good in that meeting. He, he listened. And he was gracious and um, and very pleasant, actually. Um, and, you know, and I told him the problems that the uh, uh, that the Medicaid expansion to repeal it the way they were talking about would have been a very hard hit on a state like mine, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and others. And I presented him, the president, with a proposal from four Republican governors, governors and Medicaid expansion states and said, here's a way to do a softer landing. He accepted it. Thank you very much. I said also that the the, uh, the exchanges, uh, the marketplaces for healthcare, uh, I said that the credits were $4,000 maximum, and that was going to be too little money for somebody to buy insurance. So they're going to go uninsured. And I said the third issue was Planned Parenthood. I said it really doesn't matter how one feels about that organization. 
it really shouldn't be part of this bill because it has nothing to do with Obamacare. And so we listened. The meeting breaks up. I said, well, that wasn't so bad. Okay. I announced Wednesday I'm voting against the bill. Thursday I get summoned back with 17 members in the cabinet room. I mean, again, Mike Pence is there and others and a lot of staff in the room. And um, and the president, uh, make a long story short, after he goes through a riff, you know, a random, you know, one of these random streams of consciousness where he starts talking about the uh, – you know, didn't I do great in the election? Didn't I save oh money on the airplane? He's going through all this stuff. Get down to business. He's sitting in the middle of the room. Pence is direct, Mike Pence directly across from him. I'm two to the left of Mike Pence. And he starts going around the room asking people, are they going to vote the bill? And the first guy next to Pence says he's for the bill. Goes to me, how are you voting? I said, I'm, I'm a no. I'm opposed to the bill in its current form. And he said, why? And I said, well, for the same reasons I told you on Tuesday. And this was Thursday. And then I started to list him, and he cut me off, and he said, if this bill goes down, I'm blaming you, Charlie. You're being selfish. You're being very selfish. You're going to destroy my administration. You're destroying the Republican Party. I'm blaming you. Taxes are done. Ugh. I might as well just go to parades, cut ribbons, and he kept repeating himself. Taxes done. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it keeps going on. It seemed like forever. And he just, they just kind of wigging out, kind of like what happened to Pelosi. I was going to say, you know, sounds like a meltdown. Tell it was a meltdown. Was, I thought it was a meltdown. I thought it was a total meltdown. And then I'm listening to this for a while. I'm sitting there just thinking, oh, my goodness, this is the president of the United States reading me out in the, in the in his office. He has no idea what the policy is. He doesn't seem to care. So I, I finally interrupt him because he kept saying taxes are done, taxes are done. And I said, Mr. President, may I ask you a question? And he said, yeah. I said, are you telling me that if we do not pass this health care bill in this form, we will, we will not be able to, to enact tax reform because the tax baseline won't be low enough? And he says – that's exactly right. And when you lose, you lose. And he goes off again. And all right, so this thing ends. And he goes around the room, and everybody says on the bill, yes, lean, yes, yes, lean, yes. And it took about 45 minutes. And that all ends. He gets done, and he, he just glares at me. And he looks at me, and he says, you still a hard no? I said, I'm still a no, Mr. President. And with that, he you know he starts going into me again. And so I wait about five seconds. Oh, Mr. President, come on. And I start to make a point, and he says, oh, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Tell them I don't want to hear it. And he turns his head away and looks elsewhere. Mm. And then oh, the, the meeting breaks up. And the next day, you know, uh, then, then one of the staff actually came up to me. The White House staff said, why don't you go up to the president privately now that the meeting's broken up and uh, tell him that you'll vote for the bill. And what? I said to this guy, I can, yeah, I said, I said, I came in here a no. I said, I came in here a no. I'm walking out of here a blank no. Okay. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> okay, blank no. Exactly. Yeah, blank no. Okay. And, uh, and I said, you know what? And For those be, who don't know what helpful. you mean, I will translate yeah. it. I'm from Jersey. <laughs> he came in there a no, and he left a fuck no after the way the president <laughs> behaved in the Oval Office. <laughs> Continue and then, on. And then I also said, yeah, don't worry. I'll be I'll be finding a few more to join me in the no vote tomorrow. And and you know what? They had to pull the bill. They couldn't vote it. They didn't have the vote. I remember they that. And then, oh, I remember that vividly. Uh, so, but long story. But it was just a bizarre situation. But, but, but I, what I witnessed, though, I could see the impulsiveness. Uh, I could just see, and the, 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 frankly, the attention deficit disorder. I, I ADD. I'm not that I'm. Who am I to, you know, to, to examine anybody medically? But, but he just kept going off on different subjects. So it just seemed like there was an attention deficit disorder. Of course, there's a narcissism you talked about on a Titanic yes. scale. Yes. Uh, and then the, and it's all wrapped in a, you know, in a volcanic temper. Um, well, George so Conway, I, Kellyanne Conway's husband, wrote an 11,000-word piece called Unfit in The Atlantic about two weeks ago where he really judiciously outlines Donald Trump's 
uh, mental unfitness and he's kind of made it a hobby of researching narcissistic personality disorder and using medical references. I mean, obviously he's not a doctor, but we all don't need to be doctors to see what's right in front of us. And you know. yeah, that's, that's what I say that too, Tara, all the time. I said, look, I don't do medical examinations. I'm not, I'm not qualified. I certainly shouldn't do it on television. But, you know, if I'm walking down the street and I see a guy, you know, mumbling to himself, talking to himself right. and seems lost and delirious. You know what I say? You know what? There's something wrong. Of course. There's something wrong That's with right. a guy. That's you know, right. <laughs> there's something wrong. I don't have to be a doctor to tell you that there's something wrong. Uh, <laughs> Correct. And I, I think it's fair to say that those of us who are not in the Trump cult look at this guy every day and go, A, I can't believe this guy's president, and B, there's something wrong with him. Just People just don't act that way. They just, no. well-adjusted adults do not behave this way. And we, you know, the, 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 the sad part and dangerous part about this is that he's the most powerful man in the world. Uh, how long after that, how long after that interaction did you decide I'm fucking out of here? I, I'm I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I quit. I made it. I made a decision. I I think I finalized my decision in June. I you know I had been thinking about it ever since Trump had. I had been thinking about you know at some point when to leave after 2013. I started thinking about it, and then after Trump was elected, I I thought about it a lot more. Then after dealing with uh, President Trump, you know on the on the travel ban and then on the health care issue. And I, and, you know, so it was a few months later, I said to my family, I think, you know what, I, I don't want to waste any more time having to, uh, you know, try to answer questions from reporters and others every day about the president's bizarre you know, behavior and conduct. I mean, I never defended it. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to explain it, but yeah, I kind of got a little tired of it. You know, this is all we do is we talk right. about whatever the president says or tweets, uh, and we have to, I have to spend a, a disproportionate amount of my time denouncing the president's words or, you know, disagreeing with him. Uh, and, you know, is this how I want to spend the next few years? You know, we're not going to engage in serious policy if we're, all we're going to do is talk about, you know, his, his eruptions. Uh, and Here we are two years later. Two years and later. And look where we are. Here. And watch what's even more interesting, too. But the behavior is, is so uh, er, erratic. That's why it's hard for the White House to maintain staff. I mean, look, they can't fill positions. There's a reason for that. Ordinarily, people want to serve their country. They want to go work for a president they can believe in, whether it's in the White House or in, the, in, or in these uh, various departments and agencies. Well, we have an astonishing number of people who have not you know, the positions that haven't been filled in both the White House and in these other places. But the ter- when we do have people and they don't stay long, they leave. Well, it has to be this, you know, the president sets the tone. He sets the tone for the administration. And if you just want somebody in there who you think is pretty stable and reasonable and rational, even if you may not agree with every one of their judgments. Well, you're, you uh, represented a district in Pennsylvania, uh, Allentown area, that actually went Democrat. It was part of the blue wave in 2018, won by a female yeah. Democrat. And you'd won that district overwhelmingly, over 50 percent of the vote every time you were in office. Did you run unopposed one year? I was unopposed one year. I never, I never had an election where I, where I won by. I mean, I, I won anywhere. I, I had a few elections where I won by twenty points. Well, right. my worst election, I won by ten points. Right, exactly. Uh, so it was, was a solid. That, my point is, it was a solid Republican district that is now in Democratic hands, as are several others, which is why Republicans lost the House because of Donald Trump. Um, well, in part, although I always said the district, you know, I don't want to give myself too much credit, but. Look, I worked the district very hard. It was solid Republican because I worked it. I always knew that once I left, that holding the seat would be difficult under under ordinary circumstances. 
but um, but that was a thing that I, I that's why I talked to our leadership regularly about this. I, I, I thought at times the House Republican leadership is more concerned about protecting their flanks from guys in very safe ruby red districts, and at times they you know they discount what these members in these marginal districts are doing. They say, oh, we raise money for them. But yeah, okay, that's great. But if, if you have messages that are just so bad, it's you can't raise enough money to, you, you know, to overcome a bad message. That's uh, right. In, in some, that's right. Some of these districts, you that's just can't. True. If you're in Brian Fitzpatrick's district or John Katko's district, you can't, you can't carry on like some members in some of these ruby red districts, maybe in the south or the west. Uh, you just just can't do it. I mean, right. they have to behave differently. They have the math is different. They they just can't win simply with Republican votes. They need to pick up some uh, uh, swing Democratic voters and independents uh, to win. I mean, they just have to they have to be able to appeal them more to the base. What do you? And I think with the what with Trump, you, all it's just all about the base and yes. the hell with everybody else. That's right. And Pennsylvania is such an important state. Um, what are you hearing on the yeah. ground there? Do you think that he's he's going to win Pennsylvania again? It was so close uh, last look, time. I think, you know, look, I got it wrong last time. I didn't think he was going to win last time because I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win by a big enough margin in the Philadelphia region uh, to, to carry the state. But what happened is Hillary's vote outside of the Philadelphia region collapsed. Yeah. And she significantly underperformed. So it's really more Hillary lost than Trump won. Right. Although Trump certainly did have energy and enthusiasm upstate. And she had very little enthusiasm, of course, I can tell, in her campaign. Um, and so now – I think Trump's. No, I think it is improbable, improbable that he wins Pennsylvania again, but possible. If the Democrats nominate somebody like Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. there are there are many Republican, uh, there are many reluctant Trump voters, you know, who want to vote for someone else, but they'll say if they see Elizabeth Warren, I can't do that. You're exactly and right. They, I heard the same thing in Ohio. I was in Ohio last week for the debate, and I was talking to people who are not Trump fans but voted for him because they couldn't stand Hillary and said they don't want to vote for him again, but they will not vote for Elizabeth Warren. They'll vote for Joe Biden, but not Elizabeth Warren. They, the Democrats need to know the way to beat Donald Trump is not to beat him from the left, it's to beat him from the center. Correct. And so they have some candidates out there like Biden, I would argue Buttigieg yep. and Klobuchar, for yep. example, who are trying to Bennett uh, and, and who are trying to kind of claim that more center, center left lane. Those folks, I think, are a much better position to contrast with Donald Trump uh, than Elizabeth Warren, because I would always argue that. You know, that I always said that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are two different sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. They both appeal to an anger. Trump's was more culturally based. It's either the Chinese, it's the Mexicans who have made your life miserable, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the, uh, the, uh, on the other side, you know, Bernie Sanders says, you know, you're, 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 you know, he's angry too. He says it's, it's the pharmaceutical company, right. it's Corporate the bank, mm-hmm. you know, it's the insurance, you know, it's some rich guy. You're, that's the reason why you're miserable. It's an anger. I mean, and I don't think, you know, replacing a right wing nativist populist with a left-wing economic, uh, you know, democratic socialist populist is the answer. It's clearly not the answer. So I think that's where the Democrats have to get their heads right. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, because she's going to ban fracking, so how does that play in Pennsylvania and Ohio? I'll tell you, in western Pennsylvania, where there are a lot of working Democrats, 60,000 jobs. You know, they, they, they heard that loud and oh, clear. Just like they heard Hillary Clinton say she was going to bankrupt uh, uh, the coal miners. You know, I mean, yeah, this that- is... It's I don't understand what the hell Democrats are doing. They need to get their heads out of their asses. Uh, Like Friedman in The New York Times said, fight the revolution later. None of your stupid policy differences are going to matter if Donald Trump wins again. Yeah. Put up. Well, the problem for the the Democrats, I've said this to many of my Democratic friends. 
that, you know, you go into states like mine and you go across, you know, what people would call flyover country. I don't like that term, but the right. interior of the country, um, the interior of the country. I mean, there's a perception that, you know, many of these top Democrats are at war with industrial and agricultural America. I mean, they, they, they hate the coal industry. They hate the gas industry. They hate the oil industry. They hate the chemical industry. They hate the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance industry, the financial services industry. These I, I went out a long list. employ people, though. <laughs> exactly. And these are these, People in my district work in a lot of these industries. Right. I mean, who do they? You know, who do they like? I mean, they can't say they hate these industries, but then somehow they, they think that the people in in, in those industries haven't heard them. Well, the and problem the, the, is they the, don't have a good message to explain the difference. And I say that all the time. I'm like, yeah, you go after these people, but who do you think signs the pay- paychecks of the workers? You guys are shooting yourselves I mean, in the foot. A lot of my neighbors work in the pharmaceutical sector. They're in, they're developing drugs. They're making uh, pharmaceutical drugs. They're doing research. They're develop. They're, they're uh, manufacturing. They think they're doing something honorable. The guy in the anthracite coal region, who who mines coal for metallurgical purposes, not even for electrification, they use used to make steel. They think they're doing something honorable. Or the the guy who's making a loan. That's right. Thinks he's doing something honorable, helping somebody realize the American dream through a, a small business loan or a home loan. Sure. I mean, what, what do they, when they, when they, when they make these statements, it's, it's, it, 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 people hear them and they just, uh, you, know, you can't have a base just made up of, you know, Hollywood, higher education employees, government workers, trial lawyers, environmental activists, and people with a, you know, with a pet, you know, with a pet issue. That's I right. mean, that seems to be where they are, and um, you, you're gonna, they're going to have to start speaking to industrial and agricultural America in a way that's a bit more respectful, and uh, like they did to the coal workers. You know, yeah, well, we're going to shut down your industry, but hey, we're going to give you relief. We'll pay you. As yeah, if these it, people, it's, uh, it's as if they have no pride. And it, talking to them like they they're proud people. Right, and Donald Trump was smart to tap into that anger. And I always joke with Rick. Well, not always, because Rick Santorum is very upset with me now, but uh, back in 2016, I used to to say to Rick Santorum that I blamed him for Donald Trump winning because he's the one who wrote the book about the disenfranchised uh, blue-collar workers in places like Pennsylvania, where he was a former senator, and that those were the people that Republicans needed to tap into because they were forgot the forgotten men and women of, the, of blue-collar America. And Donald Trump must have read that book because that was the playbook that he used to win, to message things. And, you know, if these Democrats don't stop with these far-left messages demonizing everything and everyone and hard work and all of that, you're going to get another four freaking years of Donald Trump despite everything else. And I think that that's, uh, that, that the prospect of that horrifies me. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm just, right. I think that- I'll give you a very specific example before we go. Sure. I remember, you know, when uh, when uh, I guess one of the candidates attacked Joe Biden on forced school busing, uh, and uh, several months ago, and I thought, you know, this is the problem for the Democrats. Yep. You know, that that was an issue, regardless of your views on on civil rights. And I supported the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. I believe it was all good stuff back in the day. And a lot of people at that time who who supported Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act didn't support school busing. So That's Biden, you know, uh, was opposed to it. You know, nobody's talked about that issue, by the way, for 50 years or 40 years. Right. And, and then so so they're trying to pin Biden. And I said, well, you know, they always the Democrats always talk about the Scranton test. Well, Scranton's about 60 miles north of my my home. And I wish all these people who would like to talk about the Scranton test would actually go visit Scranton. You know, but I can tell you, um, if they were to talk about issues like forced school busing, 
up there, a repeal of the Hyde Amendment, regardless of your views on abortion, you just leave the Hyde Amendment. They would basically tell you, like on forced school busing, you know, again, you got a lot of Irish, Italian, Lithuanians, you know, grandpa may have black black lung disease, the son might have a tough time with a job, holding, you know, keeping his job for whatever reasons, you know, the grandkid might have an opioid problem. And you start talking about issues like forced school busing, they're going to look at you and the polite ones are going to say, eh, I'm voting for Trump. Of course, because they're that's like, what, they, what, what the hell does this have to do with us? This was 40 years yeah, exactly. ago. We're it not racist. We don't care. This doesn't affect us every day. Yeah. Grandpa's got black lung. My husband can't find yeah. a job. We're losing our house. And businesses are pulling out of our, our city. What What are you going to do to help revitalize our neighborhoods? That's what yeah, they exactly. care about. Right? Yeah, and so, so, in, so in, our, in Alabama passes a, an abortion restriction law that is so outrageous, you know, that is so over the top. You know, the answer isn't to repeal the Hyde Amendment. Right. That's, That's not right. the answer. That's right. It's not the answer. And I and I think the Democrats have again, it's not attacking the, the, you know, they, they have to attack when when Republicans and Donald Trump go off the rails. The idea is not to go far left. The idea is to go back to the center. And they just don't see it. They just there, there are too many of them. Don't some of them see it? Uh, but unfortunately, they're leading candidates and 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 Elizabeth Warren. You know, are you know, going in the, the wrong direction. Uh, I w- I support Joe Biden as of right now, and I think he's still the best person to beat Trump. But they've got to get their campaign together. I don't know what they're doing. Um, They're letting Elizabeth Warren overtake them with this nonsense. And just because she's showing more enthusiasm and the media is playing along and I, I, I'm worried. I'm I'm worried. Uh, Before we go, I have to say something about your district. And I think this might, one of my favorite childhood places as uh, is in your district was Dorney park in your old district. I, I live uh, I, I live about a half a mile to the park entrance. Oh, my gosh. So as a kid, I used to go to Dorney Park all the time. And one of my mom's really good friends was in the band. And they used to go and they used to perform at Dorney Park like once a month in the summer. So we would spend weekends up there. And I used to have the time of my life at Dorney Park. And when I was about nine years old, I used to get up on stage with my mom's friend's band and perform Michael Jackson songs in my little Michael Jackson jacket and glove. And I would sing with the band. I was like nine at Dorney Park. And my grandmother was a professional dog handler. So we used to go out to um, that part of, of Pennsylvania often for dog shows. They were different. Every, oh, yeah. every couple of you know, weekends, we'd be in that part of Pennsylvania. So I spent a lot of time in your in your district as a kid. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a wonderful place, Dorney Park, and it, it's grown a lot since you've been there. It's uh, there's been a lot of investment in, it, and it's even it's even better uh, I, now than when it was when, when we were kids. I've got to check it out. It's been probably I'm yeah. 44, so it's probably been about 30, you know, plus years since I've been there. But, oh yeah. Um, uh, I, I gotta go back and check it out when next time I'm in I'm home in Jersey and we have some time to do it. Charlie Dent, go it's been such it. a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for speaking out, and um, you know, the more you, you got to keep talking to your Republican colleagues and tell them they need to grow some balls and stand up to this president <laughs> because we can't do just for the, for the term, sake of the republic. You, you use that term. I would say, oh, you know, uh, I won't use the term I use. <laughs> I have to be careful. Okay. All right. Very good. Oh, we'll right. have you back, Charlie. Thanks so much. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
again, big thank you to former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Um, he's always fun to talk to. I love Charlie. So um, before I close this week, since again, it's been a heavy episode, I wanted my feel-good story to be something that is a really, really good feel-good story. Many of you know that I am an animal lover, so I often tell stories about that have to do with animals and people either rescuing them, helping them, or using animals to help others, something like that. Well, a couple months ago, I happened upon this um, Instagram account because the Twitter account, Dodo, featured this guy, his name is Dean, and he's cycling around the world. He's decided that he's going to do this. So, all right, good for him. It's a very millennial thing to do. Uh, He's from Scotland. And along the way, along his travels in Montenegro, he happened upon this kitten that had been abandoned on the side of the road. Little, little bubba kitten, probably, I don't know, a couple weeks old, maybe 10 weeks old. And he ends up taking her and bringing her with him. He names her Nala and he raises this kitten along uh, as he's traveling from country to country on his bicycle. He has made all of these adjustments and accommodations so that now he has his companion Nala. She is adorable. And this was about a year ago when he first found her almost a year ago now. And I've been following the account for about mm, seven months now, I guess. I guess I discovered it in March. So yeah, six, seven months now. And he's on Instagram and uh, the Instagram account is one bike, one world, the number one bike, one world. And the daily adventures that he posts on Instagram and the Instagram stories, it is amazing. Of course, I always have some agita. I worry that something's going to happen and I would be devastated. But Dean is one of the nicest guys, like just such a, what a big heart he has and what he does and how he takes care of Nala and, and like people, he's got, I don't know, like something like 670,000 followers on Instagram and people just, you know, they donate money and he's, um, he's been able to, some of the money that's been donated, he gives away to animal charities from in different countries that he's traveled through. He always tries to, um, help strays or go to shelters and, and donate money that people give him to the shelters. It's just such a heartwarming account to follow. So if you're into that, follow Dean and the adventures of Dean and Nala. Just another update with Dean, something amazing that he's done. He was in Georgia, the country of Georgia, and he came across this, um, injured puppy on the side of the road. Oh my God. This puppy, he was all white and he was, he was, couldn't really lift his head. He was clearly hurt. Um, couldn't have been more than, I don't know, maybe 10 weeks old again. And he scooped him up and this was just, so he was leaving Georgia about to go to Azerbaijan. And every time he crosses a new border, he has to take Nala to the vet because she's got a little pet passport, which is so cute. And she has to get checked out and they have to make sure she's, you know, okay to travel and doesn't have any diseases or anything. So he was literally like 500 meters from the Azerbaijan border. He'd, he'd cycled like four hours to get there from the capital of Georgia. And he comes upon this puppy that's been either hit or discarded on the side of the road. And he's like, oh my God, I can't, I can't leave this puppy. He scoops him up, puts him in his gear 
turns around and bikes back four hours to the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi. I think that's how you pronounce it. Four hours. So he could take this puppy because he can't cross the border with him. And obviously, I guess he knew from the, 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 the trip he just took that there was nowhere to take him to a vet between there. So he turned around, bicycles four hours back to Tbilisi, brings the puppy to the vet, to an emergency vet to have him looked out, looked at and saves this puppy's life. I was like in tears. So of course, every day I'm looking like, how's the puppy doing? So then he leaves the puppy at the vet to help get better. He goes to Azerbaijan for a couple of days. He's getting updates on the puppy. He's letting us all know how the puppy's doing. He didn't have any broken bones. He just had, he had ingested something in his stomach and they were trying to get it to pass. And they nursed the puppy back to health. And it's only been a week. But in the meantime, we got the update that he named the puppy and the puppy's name is Ghost. He's so cute. And that his sister is going to adopt him and bring him back to Scotland because he can't travel with Nala and the puppy. He can't have a cat and a dog. I mean, he could, but it would be kind of difficult because what if he finds another stray? What's he going to do? Um, and what we don't know how big Ghost is going to get. But the point is that Dean is really what, what a heart for animals. And I just think it's amazing. And so if you want to get your fix of really cute stuff and follow the adventures of Dean and Nala, one bike, one world on Instagram, the adventures of Dean and Nala. So that's my feel good story of the week. And, um, next week we'll do it all over again. I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about. (laughs) It's never dull. Have a great week.